Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane's Patreon channel. I am so beyond honored to have uh, Mr. Paul Jenkins back with me. Paul was recently on the show when we did the Wolverine The Origin series. Uh, we had an incredible and really unexpectedly touching interview that has had uh, a tremendous amount of positive feedback from listeners who were like, oh, my God, he's just the greatest guy. Uh, Paul, it's great to see you again. How are you? Oh, great. Thanks very much, Chad. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be back and chatting with you again. I enjoyed the last time. These, uh, I, I was just telling you, these these episodes, we get to just kind of relax a little. I still come in with my homework done, but uh, we don't have to keep on a time schedule. There's not there's not four people to juggle. <laughs> we can just kind of talk. Uh, we were talking in the main show a little bit about uh, the character Sally Floyd that you wrote. Uh, this, this is from a, a series called Generation M back in 2006. And for me, I grew up Mormon. And was like a very closeted kid, uh, like a like with a lot of family trauma. In 2006 was kind of right when I was like really going through my do I come out or do I not come out crisis, and I didn't come out for five more years. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of my history here, but I was working in a comic shop part time, and Generation M uh, was a series that I was picking up where the complexity of the heroine sally floyd really really just sank into my bones uh rereading this series and prepping for this episode was just an absolute joy my long-term listeners will know that the characters i've really latched on to are characters that i have written literal encyclopedias on uh, and this is one of those characters so not only not only do i love this series but i have kept uh this encyclopedia updated with all of her subsequent appearances after you wrote her uh, I want to kind of just begin here, if we can. Uh, the uh, In the X-Men universe, M-Day had just happened. They called it the Decimation. Mutants had lost their powers. And uh, someone came up with a brilliant series of doing a point-of-view character, uh, telling stories in newspapers. Uh, can we talk about uh, how Generation M came to be as we start? Well, where I first came in on this was that um, I had talked briefly with the ex offices when I was working at Marvel um, because I was really intrigued about right in writing stories about ordinary people that were mutants right like in a sense you know most of these mutants um, had incredible adventures that would take them to the end of the galaxy and back you know and those are fun and it's a great i mean it's a brilliant soap opera over the years you know there's been this great soap opera element wolverine i got to write you know there's all this really interesting stuff um but you know when i took over in humans one of the things i did with that book was i got the royal family and i wrote stories about this world atalan they're very similar to the mutants those characters and they all go into the terrigen mist which is such a metaphor for puberty they kind of go in and they come out and a lot of what I had written was about, um, you know, the, I knew when it really hit, we wrote about the kids that went into the Terrigen Mist. And so, for example, there were two girls and they do this like pinky swear, you know, when we, we're going to be best friends forever. And then one of them comes out and her fingers have just got a little bit longer. And the other one comes out and she's, she can fly. And they realize at that point, tragically, that they can't, you know, the the, 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 the girl with the longer fingers says, you know, can we still be friends? And she's like, I, I don't think so. And she flies off. Right. My and mutation so, sucks. I want yours. Yeah, right? <laughs> you know, and I thought if there's mutations, it would just be interesting that it would really reflect what happens in the power structure of our society. Anyway, people with privilege, people with 
power. It would just, it, it would make itself work a certain way. And I really wanted to write about that because the, the other thing that was, was really interesting about it was what happens when you lose privilege, what happens when you lose um, something that might sometimes, and I've enjoyed writing this kind of story. It's really interesting writing a character where their power is their problem, like the incredible Hulk, you know, the biggest problem he has is his power. And so I wanted to know what would happen to characters that would lose their power and say, thank God I lost this thing, you know? Um, so I just wanted to write about that everyman stuff, which is very much more my style than the big, the big galaxy spanning stuff. I know I'm interjecting way too quickly. In the modern books, uh, the mutants have formed their own nation. They live on Krakoa. There's a lot about mutant society uh, and like mutant pride. Uh, and Victor Lavelle, who is an incredible novelist, I don't know if you know of Victor at all, he's doing a series or, or, or a couple different series focused on Sabretooth uh, that's telling the stories of the mutants that don't get public attention. Right. So in, in a way, it's doing kind of what you were doing with Generation M in a way and giving voice to characters that you don't think about very often. And I love these types of books. Uh, so Generation M then, uh, did you pitch it? Did you come up with the idea initially? I did. Yeah. I mean, basically, I had wanted to do something perhaps that was similar to Marvel's that, that um, Alex Ross had done, you know, with Kurt Busiek. Um, They did the sort of man on the street reporter kind of thing. And I was it's really great. Yeah, fantastic book. I was really intrigued by that work because it didn't just look beautiful. Um, it was well written and it, and it was interesting to to think of the idea of like, you know, how do you live in Manhattan, when you're trying to report on this stuff, there's a few ways in which I went down that road. Actually, I did one that was, you know, Generation M and Sally, and, and and you know they end up kind of joining forces and creating their own newspaper. I also did one called, I think it was called Cape Squad, and it was about detectives who um, they have to investigate the aftermath of, of mutant kind of stuff or, or superhero so and then i also did one about um a guy who was an insurance adjuster and his job was to investigate the end of the end result of like some fight in the middle of manhattan so i really love that whole idea of like what would it be like to live in this place where all of this crazy stuff is going on i think in america at this point we've arrived at that point you know? <laughs> boy have we uh <laughs> <laughs> and then can we talk about the conception of Sally Floyd? Uh, don't tell her origin story just yet, but I want to talk about this very flawed, very ethical, very everyman reporter that has a lot of history in the Marvel Universe, yeah. but also is just a very, very flawed individual with a lot of grief and pain. For, for listeners who might be more aware, a character that's really akin to Sally Floyd is Brian Michael Bendis's Jessica Jones, who was introduced uh, in, in the series Alias initially and has gone on to have her own Netflix series in that she'd kind of been there all along, had a lot of in-depth relationships with people and just had so much intense depth and love poured into her. Uh, Sally is one of those characters for me. She has a ton of heart. Uh, let's talk about the creation of Sally. So to begin with, one of the things that's interesting about her... Um... You know, I've mentioned this a few times, probably mentioned it even when we were talking the first time, is I, I don't do politics, right? I do people, you know, I I, I just, I, you know, I grew up, I was a little kid in the punk era in Great Britain, and the first thing I learned about politics was it was a self-enrichment scam. It doesn't matter who they were, right? And so I just, I loathed politics and politicians. I loathe what they do to people. I loathe the way that they gaslight people. I've never been a politics guy. And so it was interesting, really, because Sally was somewhat on the left you know i mean she was pretty fit, fairly 
you know, sh shoved to the left um, politically, I suppose. And she sparred a lot with one of, certainly in this book, she sparred a lot with with a a, a much more conservative sort of politician. Congressman Sykes. Boy, we're going to talk Sykes, about him yeah. in a minute. <laughs> yeah, she didn't get on with him. She didn't get on with him at all. Um, and, and you know, I brought her into Civil War when I worked on Civil War as well, Frontlines. And, and so she worked, you know, she went all the way through that. And, um, you know, a lot of her position would be, you know, there shouldn't be a mutant registration. Now, you know, as we were building towards civil war, one of the things that happened that really surprised me, but it doesn't surprise me now, it just surprised me back then, because you're talking 15 years ago, maybe, maybe more, was that people on the internet would either find, you know, if you were pro-registration, you were a more conservative person. If you were anti-registration, you were a more liberal person. And so conservative and liberal liberal people began to argue online about what was correct and they picked sides and i was just sitting there going like this is a story <laughs> okay now a lot of people when i created sally floyd attributed her position to me personally to which i would say well look the, you know the opinions of of uh, the the characters aren't necessarily the opinions of the management it's like a radio station sure. you know <laughs> Hopefully I did some decent work in writing that character because she was interesting and she obviously pissed off a lot of people that were a bit more conservative. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely do on a personal level carry some of her beliefs about people, but certainly not about politics, right? Because I don't do it. And so it was interesting to have written that character. She came about because I just thought, we we write someone that we really care about. She does care. She's a very kind person. She has a lot of heart. She really believes in people. Um, but she's broken, you know, and and you know, her reasons for being broken are understandable. I definitely know that when we published the last issue and people learned about her origin and what made her so difficult of a person, they really softened on her a little bit because she's a little hard-edged and they realized, wow, she'd been through quite a difficult situation. So it was just, I really wanted to make someone that you care about that's very kind, but she's broken and she's she has to overcome her difficult side as well. One of the one of the funniest gimmicks with this character, and this is used even after you stop writing her, other other people will bring her in. She's a reporter in the crowd. She'll ask someone a question, and they're like, "Oh, I fucking hate that lady!" Like there's, there's this like energy of like politicians she's trying to hold accountable, and they just hate her so much. And I love I love that for her. That's my favorite part of her character, perhaps. I she would do the thing that we'd all want to do. She'd talk to a politician and she'd ask the politician a question in these like press conferences and the politician would come up with some bullshit answer and she'd say, oh, I have a follow-up question. And then the politician would say, well, whatever, you know, and she'd say, is it true that you're just a bigoted jackass? Or and she would just say what we were all thinking. You know? So she didn't care. She, she had lost her objectivity, which is part of why she was flawed. And she was really talented, but she wasn't as objective as she needed to be. But she was saying it how she saw it, which I think was kind of endearing. So here's one very brief example. Uh, Dan Slott wrote this character in his series Avengers The Initiative which is shortly after uh, you write her, frankly. It's not that many years later. Uh, I, I don't know if you know the character, Henry Peter Gyrick, who's just like the ultimate bureaucrat, the one that's always fighting the Avengers and the Thunderbolts and the X-Men. Uh, there's a scene where he's standing to the public and he's gotten in trouble politically. And he says, and so after a great deal of thought and soul searching, I've decided to leave the initiative in order to spend more time with my family. 
<laughs> Sally Floyd raises her hand and says, Sally Floyd, frontline, Mr. Gyrick, you don't have a family. And he says, no more questions. Thank you. And then as he walks off, he goes, God, I hate that woman. <laughs> yeah, she was a really good, she's a really good like instrument for that kind of writing, you know, like good for Dan. I think that sounds great. You know, um, <laughs> it, it, she, she would always do this thing where she sort of raise her hand. That's what I had her do. Hopefully other people keep it going. She'd raise her hand and, and, and whoever was, you know, on the podium would go like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> In fact, in anyone else? Is there anyone else in the room? <laughs> yeah, and 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 it would be like the guy in in um you know in the in the football thing um God, what's it called the soccer thing, uh, on Apple um oh oh I, I don't know the names <laughs> yeah well the the guy the reporter there would always like no matter how many questions he does it was like Bob Smith the Guardian was like we've seen you a thousand times we know who you are <laughs> so Sally would have that innocence about her where she would like raise her hand and say Sally Floyd you know the alternative or something and then she would let it go and you'd be like here. And so I think in the first scene that I wrote her even, like two of the other reporters sort of turn to each other and they go like, you know, did she get past security? <laughs> like, yeah, I think someone <laughs> let her in. You know, so she was a fun character to write. Uh, so I'm going to get political for just a moment. And I'm not afraid to on this show. I think people know my stances pretty well. I am what they would call extremely liberal, I suppose. Uh, in that I am very much for the rights of the people and creating a safe space for everyone. I, uh, I do a lot of uh, analysis and public speaking in my day job as a social worker. And uh, in, in recent years, there has been, oh, I don't know the right way to phrase this. I, I feel like our country has been built on the divide of difference of opinions. And there's a lot of shitty rules and things that have formed around that and gross culture. But in my upbringing, there's always seemed to be kind of a careful balance of it. Even when things felt unjust, there was a balance to the injustice. But something shifted about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, right? When the the extreme, right, like the extremely kind of militant religious uh, parts of our country kind of took over the main platform of the Republican Party. Uh, it happened before the election of Trump. And things have gotten very, very dark since then. Uh, we're talking about Nazis and white supremacists like regularly in our news these days. And when I go back and read Generation M from the perspective I have now in the books, uh, it, there's there's kind of this maddening feeling of like, oh, my God, is everything going to be OK? Ah, right. Uh, and in the mutant world, I feel like that's often the case because the threats that we try to create for the mutant characters are these extreme versions of things. There's literally a group of armored soldiers called the right, for God's sake, right? Like, uh, so we have these extremely conservative churches, these extremely rich, conservative religious groups, uh, uh, and uh, and kind of very militant branches of the military. And then we've got extremely conservative politicians. Uh, so these are the people that are trying to pass the mutant registration acts and trying to pass operation zero tolerance and commissioning sentinels. Uh, so it's interesting to see a character like Sally standing against all that. And it was fascinating to reread this story from today's perspective. Uh, you do not have to get political, but if you have any comments on that, I'd love to hear. I don't mind getting political because, you know, I obviously, I look at it from a different perspective, right? Like when I was a kid, I could have told you what was going to happen now, right? That's what we feel like. like a lot of us who are punks then are just sort of like, well, I fucking told you so, right? That is exactly what we told you was happening. It was happening in Thatcher's Britain. We told you then. That's literally where the punk movement came from. It was happening afterwards. It's been happening since Reaganism. You can see that. Reagan, Reagan is the you know, the beginning of, of all of this stuff. So things like changing the rules, you know, um, flooding the courts with judges, all this kind of shit 
that in the end ended up with you know instead of people choosing their politicians politicians found ways to choose the people and choose their districts and those gerrymandering and shit gerrymandering is not new okay gerrymandering is a very old thing and the the you know it come from australia originally and it was it was about i don't know if you know the, the the origin of gerrymandering moving districts but basically it was a district by somebody whose last name was jerry g-e-r-r-y who had who had made it look like a salamander and it made no sense whatsoever. It would certainly, and they had shaped the district so that they could get the voters, right? So when when I've seen those things in my life, I've always stood against those kind of things. You know, I, I it may land me as far as some people are concerned in in slightly more liberal territory, right? But that being said, you know, a few years ago I chaired an advisory co for committee on film and animation and and digital interactive for the governor of Georgia because I met him, um, the previous governor, not Kemp, who you know could could use a, a few uh, you know lessons in, in being kind <laughs> the previous guy was a guy called nathan deal also i couldn't have told you if he was you know conservative or liberal but he turns out he's a republican of course it's georgia um and he was a really nice guy very straightforward he used to be a democrat now he's a republican and so he had that place um, and when the heartbeat bill came in front of him for example he said listen i've been a church girl all my life i, I go to church twice a week but my my teaching and my bible doesn't tell me that we have to do this kind of thing so no i'm going to veto that bill so you know what where i've landed in all of this especially with a character like sally was i've always believed in people chad right i, I think it's much better for me to look i live in i live in georgia i live actually in a very conservative county in georgia and so if i want to go play around a golf or something i've got a few mates and they're trumpy as anything right but my belief in the way that we do this is that we talk that we communicate because if you if you ever want to bring an end to trumpism which i think most people do if you ever want to bring an end to this like anger and frustration that people have it would be to communicate and what politicians do is they specifically set it up so that we do not communicate they divide so that they can enrich themselves and that's not just that's just not stuck on the right that's the left as well they know how to gerrymander districts they know how to divide people and so i think it's up to us to kind of find a way around it sally's a pretty liberal character but what she is as a humanist, she ends up talking to people and trying to find out who does what. She doesn't judge people. She tries to get by her own inefficiencies and, and her own problems. So in some ways, she's a little bit of a reflection of me, although she's a little more sort of agitator than I am, you know? Absolutely. I, I, I talk about my relationship with my mom and my on my show often. My mom is a very conservative uh, who has gay kids that she also loves very much. And mm -hmm. she has a lot of conservative values and still wants to create safety for people, which mm -hmm. is such a different way than we can't talk about gay in school and, you know, like all these all these extreme measures that are being taken lately. Uh, Sally, someone I'd want to be friends with and also maybe get a drink with, except I can't because she's an alcoholic. Don't drink, yeah. <laughs> she probably would have a drink with you, even if she doesn't really get past it yet. You know, she, she tries. <laughs> Yeah, she doesn't stay sober for long. Uh, okay, so uh, your partner on M-Day is the incredible artist Raymond Box, who is just amazing. Do you want to talk about working with Raymond a little bit? I'm going to tell you, he is he is my... I have had the privilege of working with any number of amazing people. I started on Hellblazer with Sean Phillips, for God's sake, and Sean is just mm. ridiculous. Sean, most people don't realize, he will pencil a page by doing two or three stick figures and vaguely look like it, and then he goes straight to ink. He's amazing. That's right? incredible. Incredible. I have worked with, you know, uh, Umberto Ramos. I've worked with John Romita Jr. 
Um, but I don't think any of those guys and any of those artists, any of those people that I've worked with will mind if I say that my favorite person to work with and everyone knows it is Ramon. He is, he is, first of all, he's a really pleasant person. He's a, just a sweet natured guy. He's so talented. I'm about to give away a little secret here. He's so talented and so prolific and so good that he can probably ink two pages by lunchtime every day. Mm. He is so versatile. He's so quick. Um, so usually I will talk to his agent, David Macho, who's who runs a, an agency called the Spanish Inquisition in, in Spain. Um, and I'll say, is Ramon available? Because I want to work with Ramon all the time. He's he's so fantastic. Um, and this was actually the first time that I worked with Ramon. Then we did Civil War together, Civil War Frontline. So I was lucky enough to do a bunch of books with him. But this... You know, I was amazed because just like Sean Phillips, there are scenes where just people are talking and then there are scenes where some stuff happened. But a lot of this was a drama. It was mostly about her acting like a reporter or a detective, going behind the scenes, talking to people that were sitting there. It's not like a lot of people threw punches in this story, right? It was a, it was a detective murder mystery in some ways. And Ramon would nail every page. And the best thing I can say about him is when you write a script, imagine that you're a working comic book writer um, at times, you know, I've written four or five books a month for Marvel, and that's a lot of stuff. And so you you write it and you send the script away and it comes back. And then usually because of the way this, the, the art looks, you tend to adjust things. Um, you you Maybe an expression isn't correct or it just moved a little bit differently. And it's fine. I'm happy to, to like change it and make it work the best I can by re-dialoguing the work. Whenever I get a page from Ramon Bax, and this has never been an exception, it looks exactly the way that I imagine it to be. Mm. So he's fantastic. I, and I'm, I'm not blowing smoke. I just, I don't think there's anyone like Ramon in this business. So Generation M opens right after M Day has taken place. Sally mm. wakes up on the floor of her apartment drunk. There's a cut on her face. And immediately after, a giant red mutant dragon who has lost the ability to fly, his name is Ned Ralston, he's never a character we've seen again, uh, crashes to the ground outside of the alternative office, which is the newspaper where she works. Uh, and later she goes to the funeral of this forgotten man. And this is kind of how we meet this character. She's drunk on the floor, but listen to this initial caption. Nothing was ever going to be the same and nobody cared. I cared. Over the next few days, word began coming in from Russia, Turkey, Greece, Iran, a massive worldwide loss of power for the majority of the mutant population. Even then, it took a couple of days to understand the scale. The body count was staggering. People caught in mid-flight, others suddenly unable to control their powers, just flamed out. Like Tony Romeo, the owner and main attraction of a nightclub in Manhattan known as the Inferno. Moments after the flash, Tony found out all he needed to know about spontaneous human combustion. Jeannie Martin of Long Island suddenly found her 40-inch neck unable to sustain the weight of her head. And there's a brutal image of this woman with a long neck with a broken neck. 25 years of misery ended with a snap. No one called the cops for an hour. The charges were arbitrary, as if God was trying to prove a point that life is unfair. Some mutants retained their shape but lost their powers. Gary Peterson drowned in 10 feet of water when his gills closed up. Latonya Jefferson woke to find her near impenetrable skin gone. What was she to make of that? How do you go from ugly to beautiful overnight? How do you prepare for an ordinary life when you've only known the extraordinary? Suddenly the mutants were at one hundredth of their former number. 
People were scared. Some of them lashed out, usually at no one in particular. It was like the anti-bomb went off. And instead of causing mutations, it reversed them. They sent me to cover the fallout. So here's one of the fascinating things already is M-Day hits everybody differently. Some people like Chamber, which we'll talk about in a minute, lost yeah. their powers but didn't get a human form back. Others stayed mutated while losing any abilities they had. Uh, and some reverted like more to their human forms. So the the exploring that you do about how this would impact different types of people and different types of power sets is already fascinating. Uh, do you have comments on it? I, I know I do a lot of... Here, let me read your words to you. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I like to hear it. It's great. Um that wasn't too bad either you know we did okay um i think you know i i've i've done this a few times you know i've i've really wanted to write about mutants in fact i had actually made that i didn't do much with the x offices for a while you know uh when i was at marvel because i i was busy doing inhumans we did uh wolverine's origin i did uh you know hulk and spider-man and different stuff um, but the one thing that I really wanted to do, because I think this is my wheelhouse, is to do character studies, right? Um, one time I'd had a conversation with the ex-officers about, can I just go in and get each individual um, mutant, pick one? I don't care which one it is, and I don't care what their power is. I guarantee that if you just take a look at what their power is, you'll find the human story in that, you know? Um, the blob, for example, would be someone you'd love the blob. You know, this is a guy who has like body image issues and has got like a power, but uh, yeah, you know, there's a there's a very specific way in which they looked. Um, so in, in one of the books that I wrote, I can't remember which one it is off the top of my head. I remember writing, I might be Alters, which obviously came out of this in the end. Um, but but I had written a little bit about like you know, when we look at people and we use the internet, remember this came about, this book came about as the internet was really burgeoning and we were starting to communicate in a different way and it wasn't a good way, right? If if we're on the 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 information superhighway, then why the fuck were most people riding around on pogo sticks? It was driving me crazy, <laughs> you know? And I'm watching this stuff happen and I'm thinking, you know, if there were mutants and if there are superpowered people... Um, one of the stories that I planned for in Alters, and one of the days if I can I can do this again, and it was one of the ones I'd originally pitched for the X-Men, was what if someone's mutation is just, you know, they're an amazing, like it's a woman and she's amazing. She saves the world. She's fantastic. She does all these incredible things, but it makes her look ugly. And so the newspaper report is going to be ugly chick saves world, right? That's what we do. That's what we do as human beings. And so imagine the tragedy of someone who does good, who really works hard, despite the fact that they're taken apart in the press because they're not as attractive physically as somebody else. And we do that to people. You know, that's what our society does to people. We we watch Britney Spears have a mental health breakdown and we laugh about this and we share stories about it and we speculate why did she shave her head and stuff like that. It's like, well, I can give you a good reason. She needs some help, you know? And so I really wanted to put that in, in this book and sort of talk about, you know, what happens if you're a mutant, you don't want that power. What happens if you're a mutant and that power is just, just not helping you. What if it really helps you? And one of my favorite things, um, that we put in this book, I'll just di digress for a second, was that there was a guy who was a, a basketball player and he loved basketball, right? But he got a mutant power that made him so good at basketball that he couldn't use his talent, you know, and he couldn't use his, he couldn't fail, 
right? So he says something about like, I, I when I was a kid, I watched the Harlem Globetrotters and I really, really wanted to be a Harlem Globetrotter, but I kind of couldn't because I couldn't do it properly because I had a mutant power that made me too good. My ability was too good. I couldn't do the dream that I had. And the best thing that ever happened to me was losing this power so that now I can go back and use my skill and my energy and, and all the stuff, you know, all, all the dedication I have to be good at basketball. So we took this from a million different directions and hopefully we explored pretty much the human condition in some ways. It's brilliant. Uh, we're going to come back to the basketball player in a minute. <laughs> the next big scene is when Sally is interviewing Sykes. Uh, Sykes is a very conservative politician who is saying mutants are dangerous. And now while we have the chance, we should start legislating against them. There's a debate between Sally and it's a public debate asking kind of about freedom of speech and the right to protest. And he keeps assuring her, you know, look, I'm a really good person. I understand law. I have a right to do what I'm doing. Uh, there's a point where <laughs> there's a point where toward the end, things get a little bit heated. And this is the part <laughs> where uh, he starts to get defensive. Uh, he, uh, he, he says to Sally, you know, I have a right to, to grind my axes, whatever. And then he says, just as I believe in your right to drink alcohol excessively and, and skew articles about me. And Sally says, I'm, I've, uh, flattered congressman. It's not often a man of your elevated stature bothers to take an interest in the personal lives of the reporters covering them. And Sykes says, you're not a reporter, Miss Floyd. You're a fashion columnist with a left-wing rag that specializes in character assassinations. And she says, I have a follow-up question, congressman. How do you respond to people who say you're a bigoted jackass who wouldn't recognize the constitution in a lineup of elementary school textbooks? <laughs> this character always has just, she's ready to go. No one can intimidate her until the crazy guy who starts leaving shit on her door. We'll talk about that in a second. Right, right. Uh, you talked a little bit about this part uh, uh, between you know Sally and her ability to question and have biting commentary toward politicians. But uh, the, the creation of Sykes itself and establishing the point of view from a, an extreme but also reasonable congressman uh, mm -hmm. who, who is pushing for what he believes in uh, but is also still clearly the villain <laughs> in, in the way we're looking at this. Do you have any uh, commentary? I I I almost wondered if you named him Sykes on purpose, like Oliver Twist, because that's a that's right. a name that, that sticks on your tongue unpleasantly, right? You found that well, good good spot by the way. You win a no prize. Stan would have given you a no prize for that. <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of thing. I mean, you're trying to you're trying to do like really interesting. I mean, when you name a character, right? Some of it's intuitive, and some of it is just you draw from things, you know. Um, so let's go back to me politically and what I do. Like, I think that people should talk to each other. And Sally actually has had, uh, I'm going to run outside of this book for a second and go to Civil War. We had Civil War Frontlines. And there was a congressman that was really high on, on the Mutant Registration Act. Um, but I modeled him on John McCain. Now, John McCain, right, conservative politician. But, you know, that guy, I mean, that guy was a patriot, right? Like, he, he may or may not have had uh, opinions that, you know, some people agree with and some people don't. But that guy, you know, he he was held captive in Vietnam and they they get, he was a young officer. Um, and because he was the son of a prominent person, they offered him a chance to come home. And he said, no, I'm not going to leave my guys. That guy, that guy was a pretty phenomenal human being, I think. Right. And so there's a moment in this where we think we know what's happening in 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 civil war and Sally kind of trying to catch this guy out. And at a certain point, he tells her about this. And he, and he rocks her world. He realize, She realizes, man, I've been attacking you. I've been getting at you because you're the guy that represents the thing that I don't agree with. 
And he kind of hands her her lunch and says, look, I'm a, and he shows her that he's a patriot and it changes the way that she thinks about things, right? It gives her something else to think about. She is out, a little out of control. She's a little harsh at times. She's got a drinking problem. You know, she, she pushes when she shouldn't. Now with Sykes, he deserves it because right? he's not very nice. But, you know, she she likes to get in a, the odd quip. She's very witty. So she kind of has a go at him all the time. But, you know, he's he's got his own set set of values and sets of things that he thinks about and they're in a position to what she thinks and so she wants she will challenge him she will challenge him because what she really is like i said is a humanist she wants to make sure that people are okay and she feels that he just moves crowds and you know it's she's more like me she thinks he's self-enrichment bullshit you know so sally has an editor at the alternative named neil crawford we won't talk a lot about neil but he's a very good newspaper editor he is very exasperate exacerbated or good goodness i can't say that word exasperated by sally at times but he also knows she's very good at her job uh, she wants the chance to bring a piece called the mutant diaries back and we start to get realization that she has a lot of connections to the x-men and to mutants in their community uh as an ally uh, but also, as we're going to learn later, the mother of a mutant. So she's connected to this community in a very clear way. She gives me a lot of like P-flag mom energy. It's the mom of the gay son who's like very involved in the gay community because she's lost someone. Uh, but she gets permission. And she the first story she writes is about Chamber, who uh, she is. He's basically in a coma. This is right before a lot of wild history in Chamber's own chronology. But we won't <laughs> cover that today. Uh, but she she writes about this man who has lost his power and is now basically uh, going to die. And the, the story goes viral and she gets very popular. Uh, she's in Time magazine. She's on Oprah. She's publicly debating Sykes now. And one day she comes home. So there's a quick advancement of time and there's a message hung on her door. Not enough died. And she opens an envelope and there's pictures of several mutant corpses inside. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you want to comment on this section of the story, Sally kind of rising to fame and then immediately having this very creepy thing happen to her. Well, the, the thing with Chamber was cool because, you know, what we he was an example of someone where, you know, he loses his, this ability that he has, you know, um, she she does it very real world. I recall, you know, that she would sort of say, you know, this this was a nice kid. You know, she met him a couple of times. She interviewed him for the Mutant Diaries or something. And, you know, she, I, you know, he wanted to talk about the football results or something, you know, he wanted to like, you know, talk about like stuff that was just reg ordinary stuff. And now she's sitting in a, in a hospital room with him and his heart is missing and his, his throat is missing and they've got some mutant machine to keep him alive. And she realizes what's happened. And so she decides like, wait, it's, this is not about the ones that died. This is about the people that are left. You know, this is about like, like, what are we going to do with all of these people who've been depowered? So she writes an article and, you know, it goes viral in 2006 terms or whenever this book came out, you know, it goes viral and people are like really excited and they're like, wow, we need to bring back the mutant diaries. And she calls it the ex mutant diaries. And that's fantastic until someone targets her and gives her all these pictures. And basically a serial killer of some kind, somebody is now targeting depowered mutants because they're, they're a bigot and they want to kill. They've always hated mutants. You know, it's interesting that you use the term ally with her, right? It is interesting to see whether or not that, you know, the the mythology and the sort of um, just the pantheon of characters and the, the way that they've been presented is, is in many ways a metaphor 
for the LGBT community in some ways, right? You know, and, and well, I, so, think, I think it's a metaphor for any minority community, any minority, any, yeah, you take, any, you take yeah. people who have the shared experience of yeah. being outcasts and put them in a room together. And it's really yeah. complicated because there's still privilege and status. If you take, if you use the LGBT community, there are people with money and without there is white and black and Hispanic and immigrant and disabled and young and old. And, you know, it, it's really complicated, which is one of the reasons I love this series. Uh, but it's the same in the African-American community or in the expat community. Anywhere you go, you're going to find a lot of variation in belief and experience. Yeah, but she is an ally in the sense that she has always connected with all of those people. And I think that that's really valuable for her, you know, that she has that like good connection. Um and she understands these people because she just, you know, she uh, sort of interacts with them as she interacts with anybody in her family or anybody. She doesn't she judge work, people, right? Yeah, there's yeah. no, there's no, there's nothing there except like these are people just like like anyone, uh, but they have an ability or they have something that sets them apart, right? So you know, I like that comment in a sense because she is an ally in the sense that she understands them as being someone from work or someone from the pub or someone from a family, you know, everyone's sort of like living this, you got one go around on this planet, right? You got that many years to go around on it. And then you sort of, who, who knows what happens next? She's of that mind. And so she's writing about it and writing about the condition. And she finds when she brings back the mutant diaries that people are really interested in what, what's now happening to these ex mutants, but unfortunately it creates a problem. You can attest to this. When I reach out to anyone on this uh, and ask to, them to come on the show, I always write very first. Grand Malkin Lane is a safe space for queer people. <laughs> like I put that in the first line. It's not a gay podcast, but I want to make sure I and my audience are going to be really comfortable with whoever shows up here. <laughs> so that's right. that's one of the first things I mentioned. And Sally's one of those people that everyone can be relaxed around. Right. Uh, okay, we're jumping into issue two. I'm going to cover a couple things here. Sally continues reporting. We learn about, and, and I'm listing these surely because it's fascinating. Uh, for the for the mutant completists out there, these are a lot of characters we haven't seen again. Uh, a guy named Hubie Edge from Alabama. Uh, his name is The Roach. Uh, he's dead. Uh, Susan Spenson, a mutant stripper named Dynamite, is dead. A mutant named John Mayers, who ran casino games with his telepathic third eye, is dead. A mutant named Tim Hacker, a purple-skinned magician and a father of two, he's dead. Uh, Sally takes the, uh, the photos to the police uh, and shows them to her editor as well. Uh, and... Uh, uh, they they're talking about like how much risk she's at. You know, they're going to give people some time. Basically, is that there, there's there's a budding mystery happening in the background. Uh, Sally then writes about Stacy X, and this is a story I'm going to read out loud quickly, and then let's talk about it because this is a character. Stacy X is a for those that are not familiar, a character who it looks kind of like a scaly lizard girl. She's still very human looking, but she has the power to use her pheromones to give people pleasure or fear, basically. And uh, we talked a little to Chuck Austin about this character. Uh, Connor Goldsmith has a great episode on Cerebro all about her, but she is a mutant prostitute. She is in a place called the X Ranch. And when all the prostitutes are killed, she ends up joining the X-Men and there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens. Uh, so we get a, a, a focus on Sally X here. Uh, and here's the story I'll read quickly. Like so many of the desperate and destitute women who prowl the red light district between 9th Avenue and 42nd Street, Stacy X knows her best days are behind her. Stranding, uh, stranded between an overweight mother of three and a husky pre-op calling her, or her, him or herself Isis, Stacy is agitated. 
Her eyes constantly dart to the edge uh, of the curb as she looks for a stray convention goer or some guy out to cheat on his wife. She'll need to eat tonight, and if opportunity knocks, our conversation will come to an abrupt end. Unlike so many of the older working girls in this part of the strip, it wasn't Sally's looks that faded, it was her mutant power. Everything she had gone in a flash. And then we cut to their interview, they're sitting in a rainstorm. Uh, do you have that interview open? I do actually, yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it right now, yeah. If I read uh, Sally's part, will you read Stacy's in this section? I will do so, yes. So Stacy starts, I was thinking. Stacy starts, yeah. I was thinking maybe I could earn enough to get out of here, maybe go back to Nevada and work at the ranch. I think they opened up a new one after the other one got burned down. Hell, maybe it's closed down again. There's no freaks left to run the joint. I don't know what's worse, Miss Floyd, when someone takes away your power or when someone takes away your hope. Me and the other girls try to stick together, watch each other's backs and stuff. And there's a lot of nasty people out there. I had some guy who took all my money in the back of a car the other night. Next one he tries gets a knife in the eye. So why did you come back here, Stacy? Because as messed up as this place is, I know it. I worked out here before the X Ranch. Now I don't have my powers. It's the closest thing I've got to a home. And that's the thing, see? The big question is who has the power, the girl or the client? You asked me before, I would have always said the girl. I had these mutant pheromones. I could wrap any idea around my finger and empty his wallet in 10 seconds flat. When I went to be with the X-Men, I found a new way to use my powers. To me, it was a whole new lease on life. I made men horny for good instead of evil. But you know what that really means? Just a whore and a different rapper, Miss Floyd. A whore and a different rapper. Uh, she goes on a little bit longer talking about how people are giving ex-mutants a hard time. Uh, she talks about now the only clients she can get are the real perverts with mutant <laughs> fetishes. Yeah. Uh, now she's got lost her power. She's uh, She says, and here's a great quote of hers as well, the lowest form of life is to be a hooker that no one wants. Mm. Uh, and uh, then she invites Sally to go home with her, but Sally just pays <laughs> her some money. Uh, <laughs> that line you gave, I made men horny for good instead of evil is <laughs> my favorite <laughs> Uh, talk a little bit about writing this scene and choosing Stacey X as the POV here. Well, one thing I've got to say before we do continue is, you know, it's interesting to me, even just reviewing this work, that when I came into Marvel, probably 1997, and they were in bankruptcy, right? You know, we talked about this previously when we talked about the origin of Wolverine. You know, when 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 a corporation is struggling, um, you know, they, they were going out of business. And this is before the films. This is before everything changed, right? And you have to look at it in that context that, you know, by 1997, they didn't know what to do. So they came to some idiot that was writing Hellblazer for DC, which is, a you know, a really <laughs> more cerebral kind of horror comic. And they said to me, you know, would you like to write superheroes? And I said, sure, you know, can I do them like Alan Moore did? <laughs> can I just write, you know, stuff that means something? And they were like, yeah, whatever, anything. Just come and do something good, right? And we ended up doing something halfway decent. But I'm looking at this and I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, man, they used to let me do some really cool stuff. You know, they really did. This is this is meaningful, this work. And, and um, they're human stories. It's amazing. Yeah, human stories, you know, and I think that that's always been my jam. It's always been my wheelhouse, you know, to just write about people. So if we were going to choose a prostitute, um, you know, I was going to try and write her with some compassion, but she has a little bit of self-loathing. She has, you know, a lot of a lot of frustration about the way life has gone. She's been 
one of the X-Men, so she's been able to use her pheromones to do really cool stuff. And now she's just back on the streets trying to get by, but she's getting older and she thinks that you know she's she's you know, she's sort of having that approach of like, this is where hookers go when they, you know, when they're about to die, you know, they come back to the streets and sort of, you know, hang out and it rains on them and they feel bad about themselves, you know? And so it, it, we certainly didn't pull any punches with that scene. I mean, you know, it was just like, she didn't feel good and she was back in a place, but she sort of said, I, it feels like home. I mean, this is the only place I know where I feel like I'm somewhat understand the rules. And that sucks, right? It's part of our society, you know? Writing this story in 2023 would be bold. Writing this character from this POV in 2005 is amazing. <laughs> uh, and again, Stacey yeah. X had some moments in other places, but I think this is one of her most human moments. Mm -hmm. uh, she's often the awkward, like flirty lady who has the really mean biting comment and the inappropriate sexual advance on <laughs> one of the characters. That's kind of her trope. Just so to see her uh, stripped in this way of her uh, her pride as well as her power, yeah. Uh, there's a scene with Jubilee right after apparently Sally and Jubilee are old friends. Mm -hmm. uh, Sally needs help getting in to uh, visit the X-Men. Jubilee's working as an activist now. There's a moment where Jubilee, surprisingly, he said sarcastically, uh, puts her foot in her mouth and she says, you know, me losing my powers is basically the same as you losing your child. Oof, that is not <laughs> a thing to say. That is not a thing to say to a mother who has lost a baby. No. Uh, but right. Jubilee is not the most intelligent character at all times. This is right. also the start of her vampire journey. And then she becomes a mom. So there's, there's a lot of history that stems out of M-Day for a lot of these characters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we then cut to Sally home, drunk, watching videos of her baby, Minnie. Uh, she then writes about Desmond Harris. And this is the basketball character that you referenced earlier, a yeah. mutant who's happy that his powers are gone. So in one issue, we've got this uh, the Stacey X story and then the Desmond Harris story. And your your story about Sally flows in between these articles about mutants, which is so smart. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to talk about uh, anything I just brought up? or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing was, you know, obviously a lot of what's going on as well is, you know, this is against the backdrop of someone kind of targeting Sally as as a mouthpiece for murder, right? Because there's a there's a you know there's a uh, a murder mystery going on. Someone is targeting and killing these you know depowered mutants, right? So that's that's the backdrop. So there's a lot of tension going on. Um, but I will tell you that you know you know I'm I'm a parent. You're a parent, right? You know the hardest thing in my universe is to imagine outliving one of my children, right? Like. I love my children so much it hurts and and I I do my best as a dad to to sort of guide them and to give them sort of stuff that I think works for them as as you know one day they're going to be young men and I want them to have the right values and the right understanding and they're going that way right my my two boys are very different but they're going that way so when you when you I've always talked about love, you know, a love for a spouse is different from the love for children, is different from the love for friends, love for parents. And specifically, actually, there's one that I've always been interested, the love between people in the military is is like completely unique, because they've got a shared experience as like nothing else. And so we come back to Sally, and it's clear at this point that she's got a tragedy in her life, which has led her to alcoholism. And that's the loss of a child. Um and she just sits there and she plays the videotape of a little girl and a little girl's called Minnie. And she's this like Ramon drew her beautifully. She's a really cute little girl. And she just watches videos of herself 
A lot of artists do not draw cute babies. Ramon draws yeah. a very cute baby. He did. He did. She was a really sweet little girl, and you know, Sally just sits there and she watches these videos and she cries herself to sleep and drinks herself to sleep. And it's really tragic, you know, it's awful. And you you kind of keep coming back and you you begin to understand like what is it that makes her her. Now, what gave her this hard edge? What what gave her the tragedy? What is it that makes her her? And a lot of it is shaped by this event, right? So she's lost someone too. And now she's writing about mutants that have lost things because you can't at that moment, like you said, to this thing where she is now talking about a mutant who actually is really happy that he lost his power. Yeah. Because now he can be the person that he thinks he always was. Uh, Sally uh, makes an appearance at an AA meeting because her editor is making her go. She's like, I showed up. That's enough. And she sees Tony Stark there, which is amazing. It's, just it's amazing. great. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then there's a uh, 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 stuff about another murder that's taking place. And this murder is particularly brutal. There is a, a young can, woman. Can we go back before you go to the murder? Oh, yeah, yeah. Look at that. If you actually look at that scene, I remember this. Um, there's myself in it. I'm actually picking my nose by the looks of it. Um, Paul J. And then there's Ramon sitting in the back of it as she's sitting there in her AA meeting. Me and Ramon are there as well. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I make lots of appearances in Marvel comics. So anyway, carry on. I the often Mar wonder how many Easter eggs there are in comic art that you yeah. just don't know about. You, every time they name like uh, another, here, like here's Brevort Pharmaceuticals over yes, here. You're like, okay. yeah. <laughs> like you get a lot of that stuff, but the, the imagery, yeah. you never know which characters are people from uh, right. the person's real life. Right. Uh, there's a particularly brutal murder, uh, and the, a 15 year old girl named Latanya Jefferson, who's a young one mm -hmm. of color has been like, uh, stabbed and is left hanging from the ceiling basically. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to pause for just a moment and talk about the character ghoul. We don't learn who this murderer is until a little bit later. He is a mutant named ghoul. Uh, Paul, one thing you do not know about me, I spent five years of my life right before the pandemic making a documentary about hate crimes. Oh. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a number of solved and unsolved hate crimes here in Utah. We did a uh, focused, uh, epi it, it's a documentary called Dog Valley about a man that was brutally murdered in 1988. And one of the, one of the things I, I came to realize in doing this research is a lot of the people who kill gay people are people who are struggling with their own sexuality and have so imagine, much imagine that. Yeah. yeah that manifests yeah. in a particular way uh so yeah. let's talk a little bit about the character ghoul here if you will yeah. uh what inspired this character's design and uh where did he come from yeah i mean as far as the des design goes you know um this is the privilege of working with someone like like ramon you know that that um we can begin, a great artists do this really well when they're good at character design. We can begin with a, a discussion about the why of the character and the design of the character can come from that, you know? And I think that was probably primarily the ghoul was like a uh, the product of a discussion about what kind of person he was. Ghoul, and very quickly for listeners, uh, I also wrote the encyclopedia on this guy. Uh, yeah. Ghoul, Ghoul looks like Deadpool without his mask on, except, <laughs> but he also has an extra arm growing out of his abdomen, yes. and he's really strong, has fangs, yellow eyes, can teleport and fire energy blasts. Yeah. So yeah, I keep he, going. he's got a lot going on. You know, he can do a lot of stuff, <laughs> but you know, you probably hit the nail on the head, right? This was about self-loathing. You know, that's what it was about, and. 
you know, unable to come to terms with the fact that this is what he is or what he has become. And he still has his powers. And, and he still has powers. people who have lost their powers. Right. Like because he loves them. Because he can now, right? Because he can. He can just walk up to them. In fact, we, you know, we'll get to this. So I'm sure if you're going sort of linear fashion, we'll get to the asylum in a little while about yeah, what happens. Yeah. What happens in a group, you know, some people keep their power, they keep this ability. He's one of the people that just loathes himself, you know, and so he turns that outward into a loathing for mutants and he realizes, man, there's some easy pickings right here. There's a bunch of people I've hated for years, but I could just kill them all now. You know, I can take them all out. And so he does. And it's pretty brutal, but he's a, it it was interesting just he was very much like Spawn, wasn't he? You know, Spawn, the character, his face was all kind of melted and smashed up, but he has a, a third mutant arm. It was it was halfway, it was a little bit like that, that um, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie on Mars, you know, where <laughs> these like mutants are walking around and they're all messed up, you know, it was like a head in the middle of somebody's chest and stuff. So he was all misshapen. And, um, and I think it was just that self-loathing is what we tapped into that gave him a reason for doing what he did, but it also, you can see physically just looks bad. And so he just, he hates every aspect of himself, you know? Uh, okay. We're going to come back to ghoul in a minute and what happens, but he, uh, he murders another girl named Violet Sanchez, who apparently is a dog faced mutant. We don't really ever see her. We yeah. get the next diary uh, or or ex ex mutant diary uh, about a group called Foom. Now Foom is an old magazine at Marvel. It stands for Friends of Old Marvel. This is a yeah. run gag. Uh, <laughs> so this group of Foom, it stands for the Former Order of Mutants. Uh, and the uh, do you want to do you want to talk about Foom or the creation of this well, group? You, you first have to go to the joke, right? That is a good joke. I'm proud of it. <laughs> it's great. Foom, Foom, this is probably what, like 70s or something? It was Friends of Old Marvel. And it was like some old Marvel fan club, um, which, you know, I wasn't even a big comic book reader because I didn't get comics when I was a kid. But I sort of vaguely got a few of them. And I remember seeing Foom and going, I don't know what Foom is, but I want in, you know? So I always remember that Stan Lee was talking about Foom. And here we, I got a chance to just play the joke. So basically it was, it was the, what was it? The former order of mutants? Former order of mutants. The <laughs> so depowered mutants meeting together. I, yeah. Right. And so they were just depowered mutants and they had, it was very much like in some ways it was like AA. It, she has to go to Alcoholics Anonymous and say, hi, my name's Sally. And this is what I'm going through. And Tony Stark stands up and says, hi, I'm Tony S. And this is what I'm going through. And so she goes and she meets with them. And there's all these people that used to be, um used to be you know powered mutants and they all have different life experiences actually i really did like the fact that they all have a t-shirt on that says escape committee yes yes (laughs) (laughs) so you know i mean it was just um it's just they would talk through what their lived experience was and it wasn't always a shared experience. The shared experience was being a mutant, but even that meant loads of different things to different people, right? And so this was just about her, like, sort of confronting, um, confronting uh, a group that's just like hers, and realizing that it reflects the thing that she's having to talk about, which is what is her life experience. And know? she's not a big fan of support groups. We do meet a couple no. of mutants. We don't learn a lot about them. One guy's named Kevin E. Another is Bertram K. Uh, uh, can, I, can I comment on that, by the way? Every yeah. single name that you've read that you don't recognize is literally a mate of mine that I play football with. I would always <laughs> say to them, I would always say to my mates, I'll put you in a comic, but usually just so you know, I'm going to kill you. 
and they would love it. Like a lot of my friends would always go, "Oh yeah, kill me in a Marvel comic book. That'd be great." So most of those names are just people that I know. That's fabulous. I uh, I once wrote a book called The Mushroom Murders, and there's a there's a group of demons killing people, and I did the same. A lot of the people that die in that book are named after people from my life. <laughs> uh, we meet a guy named Joey V, who he had the power to be get the perfect shot uh, as a cameraman. Now he now he can't get one. Uh, there's there's a girl named Elaine there who's not a mutant. She just wants to fit in. Like I have trauma. Can I come here? And then uh, there's a guy named uh, there's a guy named Michael, and this is fascinating as well. Who says he's still pretending to have his powers in order to keep right. his parents happy? It's right. uh... <laughs> the, the 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 um. So this comes. I kid. This is bonkers. This might this may take a turn. This this uh, discussion over the course of my life, I've been very interested in why people do things that they do, and that includes. Um, I've been a paranormal investigator. I've done it for the Taps Network. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I happened to have had a few experiences in terms of what I think might be kind of ghost type experiences personally. So I, I really wanted to investigate it. And I found that most of my investigations were sort of like bollocks, right? Like they, they we go to these haunted houses and some, usually it was, it was all in America and people go like, it's a hundred years old. I'm like in Britain, that's literally like yesterday. Like, <laughs> you know, so just cause a house is a hundred years old doesn't mean it's got a ghost in it. And none of the rules apply like that. And another thing I did when I lived in Cincinnati and I was the editor-in-chief of, of, a, of a comic book company there, we had a TV show I investigated the, for the UFO network. Mm. Reason is because there are actually UFOs that are unidentified flying up. Now, are they aliens from space that want to come down to Earth and for some reason put things up our rectums? Apparently not, right? Because that's a load of bullshit. But are they unexplained? Sure. So when we would do support groups and we would do groups where people we do abduction groups and a lot of the people like elaine would show up and they'd say i want attention right i want attention and i i want you i got abducted last week and they impregnated me and now they've taken the child out of me and i'm like this is fascinating like it, it was such a microcosm of human behavior watching these abduction groups because people came they were shy some people didn't want to talk about it some people did and so i really wanted to put that kind of thing into this book and it, and it came out pretty well it's it's really fun. Uh, then we have the Blob scene. Mm. Blob is a mutant who has bulk. He's a big guy. You can't move him. He's super strong and impenetrable. I actually really love this character. We did a long two-hour episode on the Blob on my show uh, mm. after uh, like a very character-focused. Uh, he's lost his power, so he's just got skin hanging off of him. Uh, it, he looks like someone who's lost a lot of weight, but, but uh, it, well... We don't need to go further with the description. Uh, he says, and I'm going to read his quote here really quickly. The problem with someone like me, Miss Floyd, is I got no credibility. I've been in trouble a few times. So who's going to listen to my story? You think it hurts any less because I'd done some bad things? They used to call me the blob back from my days working in a carnival. I had this thing where no one could kick my butt, but I could kick theirs. As long as I stayed in contact with the ground, I was virtual, virtually impossible to move. I figured this was going to set me apart for life, right? Eventually, I was offered a couple choices, kind of like a heads, you're good, tails, you're bad deal. I chose tails. I just never figured something like this would happen. I'm blob light now. Half the fat, none of the flavor. Worst part is now I lost my invulnerability. I got all the medical symptoms from overeating I should have had in the first place. I got the blood pressure of a 90 year old and my arteries are clogged up like the Holland Tunnel at rush hour. 
so again, just this perspective of what it means and the the heart you give this character, even in just this couple pages, is great. Do you want to talk about Blob at all? We we mentioned him earlier. I, I liked him, you know, because I felt like if you had this fallout where there were no rules, you know, when you're a mutant, it's sort of like the rules are what we make them, right? So Blob was like nigh invulnerable and he could root himself and he could beat anybody up and he could no one could move him and he was really big and all that. Take his power away from him. And now he starts dealing with health issues. Um, in fact, I think at that point, she sort of says, hey, let me, I want to write something about you. He's like, no, 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 I don't want my ugly face on the front of your, but he, like, he's got a lot of self-loathing too. He's just, he's he's disappointed with himself. You know, he, he you know, he's the character for whom the, the gravy train has ended, right? So now he's sort of like, you know, now I'm paying for it, right? I had this power. I could do what I wanted. I, I, I kind of, sometimes I was angry. Sometimes I wasn't, I was mean, I was, um, sometimes you know, I did I did whatever I wanted to, and all of a sudden life has bitten me on the ass because I lost all of it. And now I'm a guy. What do you say? He's, he said he was like blob light. He was like half blob the fat, light. Of the flavor. Yeah, half the uh, fat, none of the flavor. <laughs> he's got a little self-loathing that he realizes I, I messed up. You know, I I didn't make the most of it, and now I'm losing a lot of the weight and the bulk. You know, my skin is kind of like you know you know when someone um might you know, have their skin kind of like be in excess on their body. So he just, he just really frustrated with himself almost the way that I wrote him. And I thought he's a really interesting character because he'd never had a problem being the blob as much as I knew, you know, he didn't seem to be, I suppose he did, but he he sort of was much more like, I, I've got this thing and I'm going to kind of project it outwards. And now suddenly there's nothing to project and he's left with what he's got, which is some health issues, you know? So he was a pretty interesting character. And again, he goes crazy places after this as well. Uh, but we won't talk about him more. Uh, Sally's ex, Ken, shows up at her house. Uh, they have a fight. Uh, and we're not going to, we're going to talk about Minnie in a little bit. But one of the things that stands out here in issue three is uh, Ken realizes what M Day would have meant for their daughter if it had yeah. happened just a little bit sooner. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a, this recurring image of Sally drinking in the house while clutching uh, an Elmo doll that her daughter loved. Again, we're going to come back to that scene in just a minute, but keep that one in mind. Yeah. And then we've got the asylum. I'm going to read this mutant diaries out loud, this mutant society. We know what prisons are like. Uh, this is fascinating in itself. And the meek shall inherit the nuthouse. There is a new day dawning at Ravencroft Asylum for the criminally insane. Not that any of its inhabitants have seen daylight in years. These were the lowest of the low, the tired and forgotten among us. Criminals, some insane beyond help, most human beings, all. How quickly the outside world forgets their plight, given the throwaway, the key mentality of today's community leaders. Time was you offered a man with a broken brain a square meal and chance at rehabilitation, a chance to repair and make good. Making good has gone the way of the dodo and quality music, that is, pushed to the brink of extinction by a nation of instincts. Instants, excuse me, instant oatmeal, instant gratification, and instant punishment. We don't care about what we can't see unless it's oxygen or it currently resides in the top 40. The massive stone edifice itself reminded me of Poe's House of Usher. I half expected to see ravens, but we found on the outside walls were, but all we found on the outside walls were pigeon droppings. An assistant warden led me to a viewing chamber, and there I was allowed a rare glimpse of the surprisingly sterile environment in which were housed several of the country's vilest and most dangerous minds. 
All I could see was a power vacuum. And then it mentions quickly, there used to be 77 mutants here. Now only three still have their powers. <laughs> One of them appears to be Prism from the Marauders. I assumed that was this guy. Uh, nope. Do you want to talk about this scene a little bit? And one of the things I visited when I was rereading this is uh, one of the reasons I love like The Walking Dead, you picture the zombie apocalypse, mm. but then you put it in a prison or an asylum. You look at how people survive in these different areas of society. Uh, mm. So this collection of mutants here and then how the power changes, it's really interesting. Yeah, so this is very much one of the, the direct precursors of the book that I wrote, Alters, right? Um Alters, for anyone that's never read it, is is about people in our society who get a mutant power like these mutants, and and each of the people in the story is someone who's dealing with perhaps a societal disadvantage. You know, um, maybe they're homeless or something like that. And one of the things that I've I've been intrigued about, especially since I've been in America, you know, I'm from Great Britain. We do not have a death penalty there, but we do here in the United States, and it just seems barbaric to me. And I'm very anti-death penalty as well. Um, yeah, it, it, it's just there are so many examples of people that clearly were found not to have committed the crime, but they were they were put to death by, you know, some pandering politician, basically, you know, a governor that could have stopped the death penalty, but wouldn't and, and cowardice on our part, you know, to not understand that people with mental health issues do very bad things, right? Um, can do very bad things. And so, you know, I I really in alters I had a character that that you know was someone that the con the question was did he become mentally ill or did it change his brain when he got his mutant power right so we go to Ravenscroft here in this scene and basically there's only three of them now that have their power and and though, and it says in this scene it says you know there's one patient that could levitate. And, you know, last week, all he could do was levitate. So he just was like number, you know, 63 on the totem pole. Now he's number three because he's one of the only three, you know. So, you know, the power structure has just completely changed, right? With the power structure changing, you know, he's become a prophet. You know, this guy's like lecturing to all the other people in the in the thing. But at the same time, you know, we did kind of flip to one of these guys. And, and Sally says, you know, the one that she feels sorry for is one that they always suspected that his mutant power created his mental instability and now that he's lost his mutant power he's just back to normal and he's in a he's in a in, in an asylum full of like crazy people and he doesn't know what to do because he, he didn't do anything wrong and now he's come to he's lost his power he's also lost the the thing that kind of made him bad and it was just an affliction that he had and i, I really wanted to write that character because I, I felt like that was everything i wanted to say about what we do to people with mental illness you know Listeners, can you hear how much love this man pours into every page that he writes? Because every one of these concepts we're exploring could be in its its entire series or a POV feature character. And these are little mentions we're getting in and like little panels on a quick page turn. There's so much stuff in here that's so good. Uh, in issue four, there's a couple pieces I want to focus on quickly. Uh, we before get you do, before you do, by the way, can yeah. I just point out that Nelson Craig is one of the depowered mutants who yes. uh, Prism absolutely takes apart, like literally just tears them to pieces. So Nelson Craig's a good friend of mine. He's a director of photography. He's a very well-known and respected director of photography working in film and television. Um, so look up Nelson Craig and you'll find the actual guy. That's Nelson's such a good, really that's <laughs> such a good uh, supervillain name too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, hi Nelson, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so Sally Infor is back to debating Sykes about this registration act, 
And uh, he's, he claims like Pyro and Toad and Juggernaut are out there committing murders. And she's like, dude, Juggernaut's not even a mutant, first of all. Are you a mutant? Is that why you're scared here? Which is such a good thing. <laughs> and then she references uh, real life hate crimes, which is brilliant. She says, Matthew Shepard was murdered because he was gay. Michael Donald was lynched in Mobile, Alabama in 1981 because he was black. A Pakistani-American man named Hamid Imran lost his life in a fire last year because he was Muslim. A mutant father named Wendell Watson was tied to a stake and burned in a cornfield by two drunk teenagers. What's the difference? A free society doesn't register people for being black or gay or Muslim. And Sykes says... Black or gay people can't single-handedly destroy a nuclear power station, which is the funny part because the mutant allegory can only stretch so far when you have mm -hmm. literal superpowers. Mm -hmm. uh, the choice to bring in real-life hate crimes was bold, and this is one of the few mentions of Matthew Shepard in, yeah. in a comic book ever, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, any human being can look at what happened to Emmett Till or Matthew Shepard um, and say that we are an ignorant species at times and it is tragic and terrifying that we can do this to each other man's human inhumanity to man is 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 depressing um it's understandable sometimes if you study history which i love to study history you know and understand how civilizations come about and why, why we do what we do um let's put it this way i've always believed that you know there, there are two versions of the way that you live life you live life either with love or with fear most people live with fear and, um, you know, the fear of something yeah, yeah, that creates anger. Anger is almost always an expression of fear. Right. And so when you see the anger that's flowing around our society right now, where people are really angry about like culture wars and stuff like that, there's, they're so willing to stand on a point and say, I'm right about this. Like you're never right about, if you tell me you're right about something, I guarantee you're not, right. There's no <laughs> one way of doing things. Right. And so I just felt if we were really going to get into like thinking about what this was about, then we really did need to kind of go to Matthew Shepard and Emmett Till and other ideas and say, look, this is what's happening in this story. But this is something that's happened in America and in the world many times, you know, there's dying because your uh, your powers malfunction and then there's dying right. because you were targeted for who you are. Right. The idea of registration right. Uh, this is explored in uh, Marvel Civil War 2, where mm -hmm. they could start to see the potential of, like, could we arrest you for a crime that we know you're going to commit? You're going to go into commit, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I could talk on this stuff for hours, but I'll be really careful. I made, again, a documentary called Dog Valley about a man named Gordon Church who was killed. I got to interview Gordon's family and loved ones and talk all about this trauma. But I also sat down with one of the killers in the prison all day and interviewed him, too. Mm -hmm. uh, these are complicated stories. Uh, and and when someone dies and is targeted for who they are, that's a big deal, which is something the mutants face all the time, constantly in the comic books. Right. To make it a hate crime is different than just a superhero story, right? Yeah. Uh, Sally writes a story about a girl named Sarah Purser who has lost the ability to fly uh, and now she is gone we see Beak make an appearance because uh, he's gotten her an interview with the X-Men there are more murders and then we get an article about Marrow and I want to focus on this one as well because Marrow is such a beloved character Marrow mm -hmm. lives in sewers she's a Morlock uh, she has what some might call a hideous appearance with uh, bones that grow outside of her skin uh, let me read the story. And then, uh, Paul, if you'll read what Marrow has to say after this, I'd love it. Mm -hmm. 
Empty nest. Life below our feet takes an unexpected turn. The alley runs underneath New York City. Don't look for an entrance. You're more than likely to run into the dead end of a noxious smelling sewer. Even if you wandered into the hidden network of tunnels, your chances of coaxing a giant alligator into a game of fetch. Uh, but they're there. They've And they've been watching us for years, even if we don't see them. There's always been the trouble for the Morlocks, misunderstood and marginalized by an indifferent populace. They keep to themselves and allow their resentment to remain at a steady simmer, like French Algerian youths minus the petrol bomb bombs. There has been one constant in the lives of these creatures, a remarkable woman known as Marrow, who has lived at, at times in the sewers and championed the Morlocks' cause for many years. She's an uncompromising figure, often reviled by police and the media alike. The first time I interviewed her for the diary, she threatened to kill me twice. Yeah. <laughs> and then we flash back to uh, the interview. Do you want to uh, read Mara? Yeah, she, Mara says, uh, you know, two weeks ago, I received word there'd been an incursion from the service. All I knew there would have been some kind of commotion. And when I got here, I found 13 dead. The ambulances never arrived. We stacked the corpses in a pile when they began to rot. And then we burned them. Um, and then she says, you know, the louder congressman cites calls for mutant registration, the easier it is for him to hide the truth. Americans are all, already labeled and registered a hundred different ways. You have social security numbers and credit cards. Such indignities afford you the privilege of police and ambulance services. So she, uh, you know, I mean, she, she's got it. You know, she, she, she understands. That's very punk thought, by the way. You know that you got a social security number and it gives you some benefits, but it also tags you. I, I, I know plenty of people who talk about like crazy shit, like you know vaccination, and there's 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 different arguments about that during the COVID times, and a lot of disinformation about it, and, um, and a lot of like crazy conspiracy theories, like they're putting RFD chips in our vaccines so they can track us, you know. And I've heard this. Uh, my brother, who's a total lunatic like that so it told me this thing and i said mate you're literally telling me this on the fucking phone which has an rfid chip in it that they're tracking dude you know our ways of doing things like slow down you know like yes of course we're under those things but i think mara actually makes a point and i think this is really the kind of thing that i like to write that i agree with i don't disagree with what she says here you know she actually is is sort of saying you know like like you see people screaming and wanting to register mutants but you know this is what they do they they register you got you, you know you can only do things if you've got a license and you've got this and you've got that you have to conform to the way they want you to do it that's not the reason for government but it has become the reason for government you know when horrible things happen the pandemic hits or abortions are now suddenly illegal or we have the aids crisis we log into our social media or our news sites and we see lots of stories about wealthy or middle class people being inconvenienced and complaining about how hard things are. But the communities that always bear the brunt of these problems are people who are in poverty, people who do not get represented in the media. Morlocks, uh, the Morlocks here are the underbelly of mutant society. Uh, she says at one point, four fifths of our number is gone. There's 13 corpses and the ambulances don't even show up. Uh, no one's coming. No one's going to help us. Uh, and that's, uh, again, this this horrible underside of things. You take the asylum and then you take the Morlock tunnels and you look at how different the outcome is. And I uh, like to because this is, you... Also, this is a whole mutant society. So the decimation right. hits them very differently, right? Right. And I liked her because she sort of went like, you know, I'm disfigured in your eyes, right? Um, 
you know, something that I wanted to, again, as another one I had for, for is very much speaks to the alters idea that I that came out of this in some ways, you know, she says, like, I'm going to wear my disfigurement as you see it as a trophy. Like you, you're going to look at me and go, look, she got bones coming out of her. And I'm like, great. You know, that's her feeling like good. Then it shows you who I am and I'm not going to shrink from it. I'm proud of it. You know, good for her. I like yeah, she describes she describes her power as like the mix between beautiful and ugly, like yeah. uh, it, which is which is a, a powerful way. I love how you work in major characters as the POV and then you create new characters. The balance <laughs> of this in each issue is so great. Uh, she she writes about a mutant alchemist next, a guy named Joe Prindle, who is a straight A student. Uh, he has a well. Mm, do I'm deciding if I want to read this. Uh, there there's uh, there's a set of twins. One of them has powers, and the other does not. And now that the one has lost their powers, the dynamic between them has changed a lot. Uh, he used to be an, a student at Xavier's, and now he's kind of just a regular dude uh, do you want to talk about this at all we won't delve deep on these two well but i do funny. like it. it's kind of a comedy <laughs> i did like it. it's a bit of a comedy but the idea is basically there's two twins right there's twins and one of them got a power and the other one didn't now the one without the power then had to use his work ethic to get along in life and just you know make money and and all that kind of stuff the one with the power didn't really care never tried that hard just usually you know kind of sailed through life did whatever he wanted now he's lost his power and he's come back to his twin to go like, hey, listen, man, can you help me out? And the twin's like, no, fuck you. I'm not going to help you out. You know, like you you had everything. You never get, you did anything for your twin brother. And now all of a sudden you've lost everything and you want your twin brother to do something for you. So it almost felt like biblical. <laughs> it's, there's something in there. I don't know what it is, but it it's just, you know, two guys that, you know, they're both the same person in some ways. But, you know, look at the two different divergent parts, you know. Uh, we also learned that she used to date Warren Worthington III when they were younger, uh, which is a delicious thing. We'll cover quickly. Uh, okay, let's jump into issue five. Uh, I do want to read the quote by Danny Moonstar right at the beginning, because again, Moonstar is just a beloved character for, by so many, and she doesn't often get a focus like this. Uh, do you want to read what Danny says? Um, yeah, we're from where? Uh, so at the beginning of issue five, when she's interviewing Moonstar, she's, yeah, she's yeah, yeah. my grandfather gave me this dream catcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let me just find it. Hang on a second. I'm gonna. Oh, you're good. I've got it. I've got it open. Why don't I go ahead and read it? It right, says, ahead, uh, ahead. "My grandfather gave me this dream catcher. He was the one who named me Moonstar. He said it would always capture my good dreams and allow the bad ones to slip away. I think that old man always suspected I was a mutant. You know, we talked about magic so much that by the time I got my powers, I wasn't even surprised." Can you imagine what it is to know the thoughts of animals, to visit other planes and commune with gods, to manipulate a person's dreams and shape their destiny with a straight thought? I had magic, Sally, and I lost it. Everything slipped away. I haven't dreamed since M-Day. Uh, so we don't have to talk a lot about that one, but it's just so, it's such a beautiful insight into this character that uh, that people love very much. Yeah, and and actually, Paul's... She she pours her heart out right there, and then she turns around. And she said, "I haven't dreamed since M Day." And Sally's like, "What?" She wasn't even listening. <laughs> <laughs> Sally's got a lot going on right now. People are being on. murdered. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then yeah. we finally get the story of Minnie, and uh, Sally chooses to write about herself in the paper to talk about her own loss and her own grief. Uh, do you want to read this article? I know it's long, yeah. and if you want me to do it, I will. It's, no, I'll, uh... I'll do it. Yeah, no, I I mean, to, to preface it, basically, what we know in the story is that um, that Sally's lost her daughter, right? That her daughter's dead. And we don't know what it means, um, but this is the bit where you find out actually what it really does mean 
and and what it means to her, why mutants mean a lot to her, right? Um, so it says, too little, too late, the story of Minnie, a Sally Floyd. I made my daughter a promise the day she was born. I promised I'd always be there for her, that I would always protect her, come what may. But promises are like hearts made to be broken. Minnie was always small for her age. Weighing just over five pounds at birth, she seemed impossibly tiny inside her incubator. The first time my ex-husband and I were allowed to see her, the doctors had placed a little tube into her nose, which Ken joked make her look, made her look like a water slide. More than anything, I can remember the feeling of panic that began to well up inside me as her little chest moved imperceptibly up and down inside that strange metal womb, surrounded by what seemed like a thousand strands of electronic wire. Oh my God, I thought, she's defenseless. The doctors told us not to worry. This was perfectly normal. Naturally, we worried about her anyway. For the first few months, Ken for the first few months, Ken would lie awake at night listening to the baby monitor. I refused to drive anywhere for fear of crashing. It's amazing how these squawking, bawling little poop machines can turn an otherwise rational person into a panic-stricken train wreck. She was tiny, beautiful, little life, and whatever happened next was going to be our fault. Once we settled into a routine, Ken and I began to relax. Minnie had a particularly bright personality, and she responded to her sleeping schedule without too much hassle. Before we knew it, we were tossing her from one side of the room to the other for feedings and diaper changes. We learned, we learned to let her fall and bump her head, whoops, that she was so light, um, I concluded she couldn't possibly hurt herself. She said her first word, which was dada, and Ken cried like a baby. Um, and then she walked and then she learned how to, was it, I can't read the last part. She said she learned how to pull the cat's tail. She learned how to pull the cat's tail, right? <laughs> so I'll take it up to there because that is the story of our son, Jack. Um, uh, he was born premature. Um, my wife and I dealt with an awful lot of uh, struggles with miscarriages. And when we finally ended up making, you know, Jack and he came to term, you know, after all the tragedy that we went through, um, he was in a little like breathing thing. He had like bilirubin in his blood and it was terrifying to me, right? For the, for, I'm not afraid of anything. And now I had a child and I would lie awake at night. I would literally wake my wife up and say, when you go near the, the Kroger up the road, can you be really careful at that intersection? Cause I, I can't sleep, you know? And I, and the first words he did say, his first words were dada. I'd been awake with him all night. He was sick. He was about nine months old and I was just shaking his little chest to get him to sleep. Um, and then he finally drifted off to sleep. And just before he drifted off, he said, dada, right? So all of this was about our baby. And I think it kind of shows, you know, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it was, that was my fear. That was my life. That was my little guy. Right. You know, and he was very vulnerable. I, I learned, um, I, I do like some of these lines, actually, you know, that whatever happened next was going to be our fault is, is the realization that you come to as a parent, like, However, this little person goes, it's going to be us doing this. And it's just us, you know, having a, 
having a baby makes you a crazy person. My babies were not premature, but I had, especially with my first one, I remembered like for 45, 50 days in a row going in at like 2 a.m. just to make sure he was breathing while he so was make sure they're breathing. Yeah. I'd like yeah, put yeah. my finger under his nose. Okay, yeah. now I can go back to sleep. It makes you a crazy person. You're worried it about you crazy. It does. <laughs> but it's just, it's it's that stuff. It's the long nights that really connect you to this little person. And so, you know, in her, you know, what I wrote here was really, you know, she's decided to write the story of Minnie. And, and so she writes... Uh, I, the way I wrote it was just I wrote about Jack, my 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 at yeah, the time he was a baby, yeah. And you know, so she goes on to say, you know, that they sort of go through the Christmas and. Well, let me read this. I it's yeah, so, I know I know we're spending a long time on this, but it's so beautiful, and we're going to summarize a lot of other stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, she says, by the end of year one, the cat was her best friend. In year two, we did a Christmas picture at the mall. <laughs> Ken wanted to pose with the paper bag over his head. I threatened to kill him. Minnie was still tiny. We loved her all the more for it. Life was perfect. We moved into a new apartment. Ken would sing Minnie to sleep every night. As I watched their love for each other unfold, the truth of Minnie's situation suddenly dawned on me. She wasn't small. No one who filled your heart that much could uh, could could be so small. And soon, Paul and Sally realized their daughter was growing smaller. And through a series of doctor visits, they learned that she was actually regressing in age, which is the worst fucking mutant power I've ever heard of. And they were unable to do anything about it. And she writes, I couldn't take it. I began to drink heavily because heavy drinking temporarily outweighs a heavy heart. Minnie's mutation began to take hold. On the day we celebrated her fourth birthday, her body turned six months old. One of the nurses told me to have faith. Maybe the mutation would reverse again. Meanwhile, my daughter slipped away. I blamed God. I blamed my drinking. I blamed myself. I blamed Ken. Ken left. I was grateful. I didn't want him to watch me die. During her final days, I read to her often. I wanted to think she knew the sound of my voice. Even if she could no longer understand it, we'd sleep together. Sometimes I'd dream we were at the seaside. I'd dream we were swimming in the sea, just swimming lazily on top of the waves, drifting, drifting. And then many, many died. And she closes her article. And that was the story of Minnie, my daughter, who died because of a genetic quirk that for forced her physiology to go into reverse. A few months after Minnie left this earth, there was a white flash in the sky. After it happened, most of the mutants weren't mutants anymore. If she'd just managed to live another few months, maybe her, maybe her mutation would have reversed course. Just a few months, and she would have lived. And if she had lived, then so would I. Gah. <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, so it, beautiful and so sad. It's very sad. I mean, even I'm reading it for the first time in a long time, and I'm like, oof, man, I put a lot of me into that, you know. But, um you know i with our youngest he's a little nut right like the old ones my oldest is very sweet natured you know kid um but my youngest uh is is loony right he's a loon but when he was a, <laughs> when he was a little boy every night to to see i sung him to sleep every night with the same song by the way if you ever know the song hush by mountain um, it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, I just, I love it. And, uh, um, you know, and, you know, I, I, I love my kids and I love, uh, and so every part of the, what I had for my children was in here, you know, at some point. And the idea that she, 
that she watches her go and she and then she realizes after M day that if only she'd lived a couple more months that if, if only she'd been able to be there maybe she would have survived but she didn't so there's this massive tragedy and at this point you understand sally um you understand her at that point like i mean you feel awful for her and she has to talk to her husband about it you know she has to like confront a bunch of other people i mean everyone now knows that she has a personal mutant story and and now she's become the story which is unusual for a reporter you know so we get this big, beautiful final story, and then we get the big action piece we've been waiting for. Ghoul attacks, because he feels betrayed, even though he's been taunting this reporter. She yeah. has told her story, and now he feels like she's dirty because she had a mutant. Uh, he yeah. gets a, he ends up getting his, uh, I don't know, it looks like he blows up. This guy's probably alive somewhere. I can't believe no one's ever used him on some supervillain team somewhere. Yeah. But uh, we, we get a, a group shot from uh, Cyclops, Emma Frost, Iceman, Psylocke, Rogue, Wolverine. Uh, Sally gets hurt a little bit. She breaks an elbow and a few ribs, and there's a line where she goes, and I can't believe she goes, "I looked like one of Hank Pym's girlfriends." <laughs> Jeez, she's, she's cynical, man. She's cynical, so that that's quite a good line. Uh, and then she goes back to work, and she commits herself to AA and getting clean, and it's beautifully done. We're not going to cover all of the rest of her appearances page by page like this, but Generation M is an incredible read. Uh, go check it out. Go read it if you have not. Uh, I hope hearing this story will inspire you to do so. Now, you did get to use Sally a lot more. The stories that she's involved in later, we get a lot of these cool parts of her character. She's grieving. She's drinking. She's making bad decisions. But she also balances the time with Ben Urich, who's one of my all-time favorite Marvel characters. Uh, what was it like for you to write Ben and to write Ben and Sally together? Um, why did I put them like as absolute equals and as absolute peers as writers? He's a bit more ob objective. She's not, but that's what makes her who she is. That's what makes him who he is, right? And so they played off of each other. They were like a they were like a comedy team at times. They were like a perfect. It, it takes me back to when I was with the Ninja Turtles, the first job I had here, and Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, the two creators. Kevin was such a go getter. He he couldn't stop but peter wouldn't do anything <laughs> and between the two of them they made the ninja turtles happen and so <laughs> just like that that I, I sort of drew from that really um so you know she she is an interesting character she's pissed off a lot of people that don't read her story it's an interesting thing if you read her story and see who she is she's a really cool character right but if you just want to see her as being a sort of left wing and you just want to yell about that, um, then that's what you're going to do. And I found that really interesting. And I even wrote about it. Um, there was there was one point where she she kind of tells Captain America off because she's like, the, the thing that you're doing, Cap, is you're basically talking about like Joe Duggan hitting a baseball. Well, that was 19 fucking 30. You know, sorry, but the world has changed. It's ugly. America's lots of things. It's not just the one thing that you see it as. And so she kind of tells him off. And so a lot of people were really angry that she yelled at Captain America. So me and Chris Marino, who is one of my favorite human beings alive, Chris and I did this crazy, stupid comic book called Sidekick about the world's worst superhero sidekicks. And we did... Sally Floyd's 10 most hated moments and she, <laughs> she like does all these things like there's some liquid character and she drinks him because she thinks he's he's alcohol and she like 
yells at the grave of like Betty Banner or something. Like oh my god, I've never seen this. I oh my god, yeah, it. it's like a two pager, and it's in the pages of um World War Hulk Frontlines. I'll, if I can find them, I'll send them to you. They're fa they're fantastic. That's fantastic. Sally Floyd's ten most objectionable moments or something. It was really great. <laughs> I've read I've read World War Hulk, but I don't remember that scene. Maybe I just wasn't watching for it. I'll it was World War Hulk Frontlines. It. it was Frontlines. We did. We yeah, yeah, yeah. Frontlines. And yeah, there were little backup stories in the back. And me and Chris would just make fun of the Marvel Universe. Basically. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so Sally, we see a lot in uh, Civil War Frontline and in World War Hulk Frontline. Uh, both are written by Paul. Paul does a lot of amazing things in the Civil War one, in particular the Penance stuff. Uh, the backup stories about war. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff. Sally and Ben Urich end up starting their own newspaper called The Frontline, uh, which is used in the comics from time to time. There is a series called Secret Invasion Frontline, which is written by, I believe it's Brian Reed, but Sally's not in that one as much. It's more about Ben and a, and a group of other civilians. Uh, uh, there's a lot that happens. Sally dates a cop named Danny Granville, who's who's that's, well, he's like superhero. That's from, that's from yeah, yeah, I love that. Danny Granville. You remember I said I, I take names of names of my friends. Another yeah. thing I also do is I take the names of Crystal Palace Football Club players. So Danny <laughs> Granville used to play for Palace. I'm a big Palace fan, so he ends up <laughs> being a Marvel character. I, don't, I bet the real Danny Granville would love that uh fabulous fabulous uh th this uh this character has not shown up in x-men in a long time we do see her in various issues of avengers the initiative uh by dan slott she's in 2008's new warriors series by kevin grievo a few times uh dan slott brings her back in amazing spider-man for a, a a bit uh she's also randomly i'll just list some appearances hawkeye blind spot number two uh superior spider-man 16 and 17 captain america steve rogers 17 she's rarely been the focus character uh since you have worked with her but she is an existing character in the marvel universe that i think is amazing and she has a unique space and is ready to be used at any point as that like sassy reporter in the audience who says the wrong thing every time but you never um, know it might happen again I would love to write this character. What has it been like for you to revisit this series? I know we I know we took Generation M very slow, and I really appreciate your time. Yeah. What's it been like for you to revisit this in 2023? Um, great, because, you know, I, it makes me realize that back then they really did let me write some stuff. You know, like, good for them. I mean, writing Generation M, that style that I had was something that was well needed by Marvel. You know, we do some character studies and and I, I like the idea of, of sort of potentially doing that kind of thing again. You know, uh, uh, if I go back to mainstream work, I'll, I'll, I'll want to do that kind of stuff. You know, um, it is important for Marvel to have rounded characters and for me to, and DC and, and them, you know, to really do some character studies from time to time, because these are the things that we remember, you know. Um, we know that an event happened, but then we forget it a little bit because it's just an event with a bunch of stuff, you know, so hopefully you never know. It would be great to, it, it was great to revisit it though. So I appreciate you bringing it back. Yeah. I appreciate you taking your time on this. Uh, we could have gone thematic, but it was really fun to break this series apart. It's very, very good. And as far as limited series goes, each, each individual issue has its structure, but there's a build and there's a strong conclusion and there's great character work done on so many different people. I'm a huge fan, Paul, I told you. Uh, but getting to know you personally is is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, yes. So we're, we're going to initially put this up on the Patreon uh, for our subscribers. And then we'll release it out on the main show a little bit later in the year. 
when we put this out on the Patreon, we're going to release it on July 12th. I, I know we're a little early. I'm trying to stay a month ahead on my show so I can take some travel time this summer. Uh, but as we're wrapping up, uh, where can people find you online? And is there anything you want to plug? Um, yeah, you know, um, my company is Meta Studios, M-E-T-A. So metastudios.com, you find us there. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, is that you? No, nah, because we were, we were 2014, so he was the Zuck was a, a little behind the curve. Um, where can you find me? Um, you know, I'm at my Paul Jenkins on Twitter, and in about f- three or four minutes, I do have to run because I've got to go take my kids to go see a movie. Oh, uh, my wife, it's good my that wife, we know. It's good we my wife here. volunteered me to go see Spider Man. So fantastic! I found out the other day that one of my characters is mentioned in Spider Man. I created the worst Spider Man villain ever. It's called Typeface, and he has type all over his face. And um, he's apparently shouted out in this new Spider-Man movie. So excited. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping to see that with my kids this weekend as well. Uh, yeah. Lastly, you can find Gray Milk and PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Milk on underscore Lynn on Instagram. Uh, the next episode coming out on the main channel after this is featuring another British Paul. Uh, Mr. Paul Cornell is coming on the show and we're going to review <laughs> Avengers 7576. The next Patreon after this is all about the Summers family with uh, with Philip CV. Uh, Paul Jenkins, thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you back here next time on Gray Milk and Lane.